the world is talking about electric vehicles. It's something that has been on the news for a few years and that we've seen, obviously, the success of Tesla. And now there are also other car manufacturers that are kind of like getting in, into the space. But one thing that is becoming more and more, kind of like people are becoming more and more concerned about is about the industry itself and about you know how this electric energy, where it comes from, how it's created, which is something that obviously the who's involved in the industry is probably like not extensively talking about it, but it's probably on people's minds. So, you know, it would be great to pick your mind in, in order to really kind of like deepen this point, go deeper into this point and really understand where we are at and really understand, I guess the focal question is, uh, is the EV industry an industry that needs to be decarbonized? Even if it promises, <laughs> it has this big claim of being the industry that is decarbonized by default, by its own nature. Where are we standing at the moment? Like, what's the current situation of the industry? Okay. So, EV industry, as it is, it's not new. In the sense that London had electric taxis, I think, about 100 years back. And they used to replace the batteries overnight and whatever. And then... When internal combustion engines came in and they took over the roads, slowly, slowly, people started seeing the convenience of just getting their tank filled up in five minutes and be on the road immediately. So you don't need to do this expensive, time-consuming process of you know shifting batteries, etc. So where are we on this EV journey? It's taken a very long time to mature to the point where EVs have become commonplace on the ropes. But today we have various countries, states, etc. mandating that people switch to electric vehicles. So there is definitely a push for this from the policymakers. But what we need to understand here is a couple of things. One is how much of an emission does the EV have as part of its manufacturing process? Yeah. So if we compare that to a normal internal combustion car, petrol or diesel based or hybrid vehicle, etc. So how much of a emission that it has, the, just the battery alone has a much larger carbon footprint in the manufacturing process than the entire car. So we are talking much bigger carbon footprint in terms of the manufacturing process. And then where are these manufactured? Are these manufactured closer to where they are used or they are crossing maybe 1,000 miles to get across the ocean to be used elsewhere? So right. that's the other part in the emission story. Sorry, before we jump to the next point. So basically we have an industry that was already somehow, somewhat around a long time ago, but never uh, had maybe the right backing or no one had the will to kind of like evolve to this until now when uh, it's probably becoming more and need more than anything to kind of like find alternatives on how we kind of like move around, find a different kind of systems. One thing that maybe most of us, I would say like the general public, uh, are ignoring is what you are actually saying, that basically the manufacturing itself is a carbon intensive process absolutely absolutely yeah which has been kind of like enabled because of globalization and so 
the possibility to bring materials here and there around the world. That is something that enables nowadays the production of those vehicles. But that in itself, before we even talk about the emissions from the car itself directly, that in itself is already polluting the planet. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What is then good about electric vehicles then? If there is anything good about them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's actually a lot good about them. The first one is that it doesn't produce any emissions when it is being used on the road. So right. in comparison to a fossil fuel based internal combustion car that we all use, petrol or diesel based cars, electric vehicles have negligible or probably zero emissions in reality, right? So the usage of the car does not produce any emissions at all. That's the biggest advantage. But we have to see this in its entirety. EVs are not a phenomenon that is alone in this picture. What we have to consider is how it is manufactured, how it is transported all the way to your showroom where you can go and pick it up or to your home where you can start, you can start driving. And then what goes into producing the electricity that you need to charge that battery. So currently, uh, you know, if you look at the OECD, which is all of the developed countries together, pretty much uh, representing 80% of global GDP. Right. So for the OECD countries, around 60% of its electricity actually came from fossil fuel sources. You've got coal, which has been declining over the years. Basically, using coal for, for producing power, it has been declining over the years. But we have a number of gas-fired electricity generation plants. You have oil-based ones. You have a number of coal-based plants which are still in operation. And in fact, there are a few other coal-based coal -based power plants which are still getting open. So that is a problem. The manufacturing process is a problem, both of which are areas which require significant decarbonization. So can you decarbonize the manufacturing process? Absolutely, yes. There is a lot of work to be done in decarbonizing the manufacturing sector. Can you decarbonize electricity production? Absolutely. There are a number of ways in which you can decarbonize. There are alternative uh, fuels that are available, renewable energy that is picking up speed at a massive scale. Yes, these are all possible. When these happen and it is at scale, EVs become a dream option. But we have to see EVs also in the context of how our transportation works. Right. So does uh, private transport get prioritized over walking, cycling, using public transport, etc.? In this country, a lot of the infrastructure that was built all along prioritized parking, prioritized, you know, shopping malls that had, you know, lots of parking spaces. So it was a car-driven economy around us. So do we still continue in this method or do we want to prioritize areas where you kind of have high streets which are pretty much pedestrian only? You have areas which you can cycle and you can maybe cycle to your work, etc these can replace some of the private car journeys that people right. take. So, so, okay, this is a completely 
uh, <laughs> unimagined yeah. and uncontemplated brunch of the topic, I'd say. Like, basically, and this is probably, like, very true in countries like the United States, for example, where you see the, the very wide roads and those are made mainly for the passage of vehicles. So yeah. you're mentioning about the UK situation being somewhat similar to that. Right. Even though in England, in the UK and in mainland Europe, uh, cities are pretty much built around the Roman structure. Yeah. So they were good like 2,000 years ago and they're, yeah. they're still used now more or less in the same sort of uh, size. Small streets, small intersections. Right, precisely, yeah. which makes our cities um, crowded, congested. <laughs> yeah. No matter how the cities have been built, this is a common issue between North America and Europe, and likewise probably other parts of the world as well. Two things, two points are coming to mind at this point. So the production of the cars in itself, it's something that basically you need energy to produce cars yeah. and the process is like, I mean, imagine like a, a, a warehouse where a Tesla car is produced. You would have all those robots, they're working at assembling all the pieces together and they're run right. by electricity and probably the materials that, you know, like the doors are made of and their parts are yeah. basically all kind of like extracted from somewhere. They're brought on the other side of the world and they're assembled in some centers okay. somewhere yeah. in the US or probably Germany, more like if I'm not wrong. And, and then obviously you have the urbanistic sort of side of it. But before going to our, talking about our cities, how do you actually tackle such a thing? Like how can you, is there a possibility for example to extract materials mm -hmm. from somewhere mm -hmm. and export them somewhere else in the world in a sustainable way? So I think the key here is you know, manufacturing the, the biggest carbon intensive stuff as close as possible to where it is being used. So you don't want to, you know, increase the amount of emissions by transporting this across the world. You can see this as maybe an effect of globalization that, you know, we pushed much of the manufacturing process off to China and whatever. But in reality, what we can think of is if we need to reduce emissions and if we need to need to reduce emissions in the manufacturing process, making it closer to where it is being used is definitely an option. Second option that we have is how do we produce the heat that is needed for the manufacturing process? So is that coming from fossil fuels? That is definitely a question to be asked. Where do we get the raw materials that are needed for the batteries? And how is this mined? How is this transported? How is this transported? How is this assembled, etc.? All these are questions to ask, right? And the manufacturing process in itself, any manufacturing process, its energy efficiency can be improved by a number of ways. And another option to also look at is, you know, if the manufacturing process is already electrified, then can we look at how that electricity is being produced? Is it coming from uh, fossil fuel sources or you know or from electricity and if it is from electricity where does that electricity come from is that electricity yeah. coming in from fossil fuel or is it coming in from you know maybe renewable sources or by using biofuels etc so we also need to understand that there's this whole process of using this as part of the manufacturing process which can be made much more energy efficient 
any manufacturing process loses a lot of the energy efficiency as we go through right so there is ample options to improve energy efficiency as part of the process that is also something to look at and the supply chains are the next part so how long is that supply chain where are the raw materials coming from where are the assemblies you know assemblies taking place is it in one single plant any car manufacturer for for instance has a number of oems around them and these oems could be as far as china or as close as next door how do you structure that and how do you bring all of the parts which you need in order to manufacture that ev these are the yeah. questions to ask then one question that comes to mind is let's say like i mean i don't want to point the finger towards elon musk or like tesla in particular but i'm sure they're aware that for example like part of the batteries are big old coming from you know extracted in congo for example in africa yeah this such materials are not to be found anywhere else in the world mm-hmm. so you know that makes me think would then make sense for a car manufacturer like tesla to have a plant there instead of anywhere else in the world or like how do you picture a solution if it's possible to do like any sort of abstraction in this very moment is it like car manufacturers should kind of like look at the planet look at where they take the resources and then according to that prioritizing that mm-hmm. and not what is the most convenient financially Mm-hmm. would then they decide where to build the car so because they have to pick a place in the world i guess yeah absolutely absolutely yeah so finance plays a lot into all of these decisions right you can't really make a car that is much more costly to produce than to sell you'll be at a loss completely so you want to keep costs low and i think that is the main reason why a lot of the mining actually takes place in countries where there is very less regulation or it is possible to get these through you know methods that are not available in the developed world so are we saying that the raw material that is needed to produce these batteries are not available anywhere in the developed world i would doubt that yeah i think the reason why it comes from these african countries is mainly because of the lax regulation and the ability to arm twist their way for a better price so right it's a social issue it's a fundamental issue that every corporate needs to look at where is your raw material coming from is this produced in a ethical manner for you to claim a certain level of ethical awareness over your entire supply chain you need to be aware you know where these materials come from a lot has taken place in this space over the last couple of decades definitely a lot of work has gone into this space but there are still a number of white spaces where companies do take advantage of materials that can be extracted in areas where these regulations do not apply right <laughs> so if you can take advantage of those situations and it is improving the returns for your shareholders every company would definitely do that absolutely absolutely it every company in this world is created for the purpose of generating returns for its shareholders idiot so if we keep that in mind is that a case where a company has to choose ethically 
or is it the choice of the consumer to choose which company to deal with hmm i would rather put the choice in the consumers hands there's a cool term for this buyers beware so if you are buying an ev it's your choice to buy it from a tesla or buy it from nissan or any other manufacturer your your choice is always there you make the choice based on what feels right for you absolutely if you are ethically minded and you want to know where those materials are produced you very well ask for it as a consumer you have the rights to ask for it to be in that position for the consumer to be able to actually choose their preferred manufacturer also based on this kind of thinking you were mentioning how is the pipeline like then at this point any manufacturer out there that is building EVs those days yeah are they kind of like controlling the whole pipeline or they have suppliers that they kind of like are kind of like they don't know how to extract the stuff how they import the things are there any kind of like blind spots in the pipeline or the manufacturers are aware of everything and they're making an actual decision mm-hmm. to be kind of like just extremely financially effective kind of like disregarding any effect on the environment like everything else right right is this the reality of the things like can right. we i think <laughs> pointing the finger to someone it's pointing the finger at someone yeah 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 see i think the key question here is you know how well we understand the global supply chain global supply chains are very very complex and even today we don't know much about it so there is very limited knowledge in terms of how many intermediaries are needed or how many points does your shipment cross before it actually reaches you so there's a lot of work on the data analytics side there's a lot of work that is going on in identifying where a certain material comes from etc etc this is the technology part of it but there is the other side as i would probably quote a book that i read quite some time ago there's a book called conscious capital mm-hmm. and in this the author says is basically the uh, used to be the ceo of whole foods and he says for anything that you buy anything that he chooses to sell to its customers they make sure that they know which specific farm it came from and they choose to actually find out their farming practices okay they actually go and visit they make sure that there is ethical farming practices use of pesticides and all that is very very limited and this is one company taking that effort that's an example that that i gave in the food industry having read that book and having you know visited whole foods out here in uh, out here in london several times i can definitely see the quality of the stuff though i would say it is much more expensive for me to do a shop in whole foods versus my high street you know store or a normal supermarket but if the high street supermarket likewise the ev manufacturer for instance can shop for their stuff at an ethical you know supplier and they make sure that whatever that i'm selling to my consumers 
i have made sure that hand on heart i have not sold anything that is ethically bad i think this also comes round to this concept of you know want versus greed and i would point that at every shareholder so any shareholder in the world right you basically look at it there is definitely a want for returns but how much of that returns is really enough at a certain point that want then becomes what is called as greed you try to extract more and more out of that company every stock basically has a company at the back and these companies are founded by entrepreneurs there's a whole you know whole gamut of people in the workforce that you know which actually work for them the moment it gets down to greed you start seeing the fact that this greed then flows through to the basically to the say the corporate's leadership and then that goes all the way through down to those who are procuring these materials etc so if i can cut cost over there by going to some other supplier who isn't that ethical but i can get it at 5% less price i would still do it because my shareholder is asking for it but if my shareholder said make sure that you deliver cost uh, savings only when you can be sure of its ethical origin that's more of a shareholder responsibility it's more of a shareholder right. responsibility i guess that's uh, probably uh, see like uh, if i had to uh, like just express an opinion from my personal point of view and my point of view is the point of view of a one that doesn't know much about it like not knowing like the ins and outs of, of the topic what i understand from what you're saying is that there are uh probably ways to already to kind of like produce electric vehicles at a much lower kind of like impact and emission yes yes there is a sort of a theoretical framework to it but it's uh, ultimately down of uh, the decisions of shareholders so we're not even mm-hmm. talking about the ceo of a company we're talking about already like someone who's kind of like putting the money in the company actually yeah. is yeah. kind of like driving the decisions of a ceo at that level that is then as you say like the greed of those who basically want to save money and so they would produce it's not just cars but like any sort of good in a certain way but okay if we get to that if then the problem is strictly financial mm-hmm. how do you get around it we see that there is a framework and mm-hmm. i would guess those people are really aware of it yeah they're aware that you know if they would kind of like spend a bit more money they would be able to produce things ethically why is not happening <laughs> i guess is the question <laughs> yeah you say it's greed yeah is it really all down to greed first question are there any any other more practical bottlenecks and i guess how do we come out of it <laughs> is there a solution yeah. to it there are a number of solutions to it and it is not just greed alone greed is definitely a major driving factor major driving factor but it's not just greed alone but there are a number of other factors that also influence this greed is there in all of us if we want to go and buy something and we see let's say the same product available for maybe 10 pounds and 20 pounds we think there's no real difference between the two then when, when i basically look at it 
or when I read the label, it does exactly the same. Why should I pay 20 pounds? Can I buy it for 10? Right? Yeah. Would you pay more in order to get that? I think the answer answer lies in this. Would the shareholder pay more in order to get less value out of the business? The answer is no. So I think the question is down to how you can extract value out of these carbon intensive businesses by decarbonizing. And for that, there is basically a fundamental issue in this, right? Carbon has never been priced as part of the value chain anywhere. Even though we have carbon taxes, we have carbon pricing, we have emission trading schemes, etc. We have a plethora of things out here. But in reality, any manufacturer, for instance, does not take the price of carbon into account for them to decide where I should buy this, who I should buy this from, or where to produce the the item, where to put my new plant, etc. All these business decisions are based on 100-year-old, 200-year-old management frameworks, which were created in a world where environmental impacts were extraneous, meaning it is for the society at large to deal with. So what comes out of this factory as an effluent or maybe uh, polluted gases that come out from its chimneys, that is for the society at large to deal. That is not for the business owner to deal. That attitude is still there in management frameworks everywhere. Um, Right? Yeah. And that is there in every single industry. Even when we say that a certain product is maybe climate neutral, or we can even say there is zero emissions from a certain product, there are still emissions at the back, right? And it is not just emissions alone. Carbon has its has its, com- uh, has its complete cycle. Unless we bring the price of carbon, unless we price carbon and we bring that price of carbon into day-to-day decision-making, and as an example, so if we priced carbon into the price of fossil fuel-based you know, fuels that we use, the price of petrol will not be one and a half pounds that you get right now. It'll probably be three, three and a half pounds because it is an extractive process and it depletes. There is a whole lot of other life cycle impacts which is there because of that carbon. So if you take that into account, you're not going to get that fuel for maybe one and a half pounds, which you are getting at the pump today. So that is the fundamental difference that needs and which needs to happen. There's internal carbon pricing as a mechanism that needs to come in. And carbon intensity of the various products that we use needs to be part of the management decision making. So just like we have a financial budget for every company, right? You have an annual budget, that's how much we're going to spend on man on the manufacturing process, that's how much we are going to going to spend on our marketing, etc. etc. We need to have a now, you need to have a carbon budget as well. How much is it that we are going to spend in terms of carbon? So what is our internal price of carbon? How do we get that from the external world? And how do we process that carbon? And how do we dispose of that carbon as part of our process? And for every product that I produce, 
I need to have a mechanism which says, okay, this is let's say x kilograms of carbon, x kilograms of let's say CO2 equivalent per bag of cement or per electric vehicle, per battery that is used in the electric vehicle. For every bolt or nut that is used in the in the the entire manufacturing process, we know that's that much of carbon intensity that is there. Just like we say that is the price so i can buy fasteners maybe 100 fasteners can be bought at 5 pounds because i can say 100 fasteners costed me 5 pounds i can i should also be able to say the planetary impact of that 100 fasteners which is x amount of co2 per bag of fasteners so that's the level of you know carbon budgeting which needs to take place but i mean I think one interesting and focal point of what you said is that there needs to be basically a shift of mentality of how this whole thing is approached so to say before the world had the the chance let's say to kind of like avoid the discussion to be had in the first place because mm-hmm. impact was so low that was negligible so if uh, you know plants would produce waste of any kind it was okay yeah no big of a deal now it's not the case anymore but before nothing was enforced and such systems were not yeah. created because of again like it wasn't that big of a problem but now it is a problem but how do you actually kind of like get the things going basically so so what i'm wondering is Are institutions now like do they need to kind of like do something about it? Mm-hmm. Is this something that institutions should or well they or could take on? Who's responsible for this? Because again like a private company probably they would be like ah you know I don't mind if it's legit if it's legal mm-hmm. I'll, I'll keep doing it you know not hurting anyone from what I what I know what I understand. Yeah. But why institutions are not doing anything? I mean I don't know like I look at like the EU or you know other global institutions like this is so important why nothing is moving in that direction there are a number of things that are moving in that direction which are basically the sustainability laws there are disclosures there is reporting etc but is it's actually coming in and asking for data to be provided at that level right so unfortunately what is happening is that a lot of the work goes in the compliance side or in the accountability side mm-hmm. it is not impacting business decisions today because there is no price which has been put on the uh, on the amount of carbon that you use as part of the as part of your process there is no price attached to it so it becomes a compliance right how much of emission can you release onto the atmosphere there are certain guidelines so you kind of stay within that you're not fined even if there is a fine it's basically a cost of doing business is this in you know, a amount of emission going all the way back into the management decision framework that companies use in order to make decisions of where you get your raw material or where you will manufacture where you will get your electricity from 
right no the answer is no that is where the carbon budget needs to come and who can influence that all of us can i think here is where we have to take there's a certain element of you know individual responsibility there is a certain element of as a consumer what is my responsibility as a shareholder if i'm holding stocks in any company for that matter there is a certain responsibility that has come in to me but there's also a fundamental responsibility that we all forget our role as citizens of course we have to question our government on the policies that they are taking so how did we perceive the fact that we signed net zero into law we were basically the first country to sign net zero into law but when ukraine was attacked by russia and there is an energy security issue at the back yeah most of europe and the uk including went in for increasing gas supplies they've actually approved a number of carbon bombs which are very large hydrocarbon projects so when it comes to energy security you're not considering net zero but you're directly going in for something that is that you can put together right away you can approve right away and you can start producing that electricity etc so all these are decisions as a citizen i should be questioning as a citizen you should be questioning as a consumer we should look at you know which companies you want to do business with where do you want to do your shopping where do you want to buy your utilities from that's basically as a consumer and as a shareholder even if i held just one share in a company i can always vote on the various proposals that essentially come up as part of the you know annual general meetings in the past right over the last i would say 20 years that i've been investing i've always made it a point to read through all of the all of the material that is supplied to me by the companies that i've invested into i definitely read through the material that is supplied i definitely go onto their website look at their products look at their consumer base look at the various you know investor reports that they sent like the annual report their financial statements etc first of all i don't invest in a thousand companies right i only invest in a very very few right so of the few that i invest i always read that and whenever there is an opportunity to vote i will use that opportunity to vote and i will vote on the right kind of decisions if it is about you know selecting certain members onto the board i would look at their linkedin profiles at a bare minimum i would look at their linkedin profiles see where were they associated are they from other companies where is there any other news about these folks if there is a new board member that is it's being uh, you know introduced i would definitely look at that secondly the other thing that i always do is if there are any shareholder motions that are being introduced as part of the agm i would definitely look at the content of those agms what is being published by the company i would definitely look at that see if there is definitely a climate or a planetary angle to some of these i would decide to vote based on that if the motion is basically to another you know, was i can probably give an example here there's one such company which had a shareholder motion in which the ask was to understand the extent to which their business 
will be impacted by physical climate risk right and i can say nearly 80% of all listed corporates are impacted in some way or the other by physical climate risk like floods or you know sea level rise or by heating etc etc right so in this particular case a vast majority of shareholders actually voted against the against the proposal but my personal voting was was for that company should make an effort to understand impact of physical climate risk onto its business so we have our choices we have our roles as citizens as shareholders as employees as well right so as an employee we have to make sure that the companies that we work for are acting ethically are definitely using using the resources the right way right these are all our responsibilities if we don't find the either the business from which you are buying stuff as a consumer or the one in which you are you are investing or the one in which you are working for you always have the choices to move always have the choices to move yeah that is a fundamental fact definitely it is yeah the other side to this is also that we always keep saying that individual actions alone are not enough you know if i can tell you the other side of this here in the uk alone institutional investors i would say among all the say major markets the uk has pretty much of a diversified shareholder base if i look at it us is highly concentrated your stock markets are highly concentrated right so a majority of the companies are owned by a small number of institutional investors in the us whereas here in the uk you have a diverse set meaning there are individual shareholders there are high net worth individuals etc etc there's a whole plethora of shareholders that that compose our sort of investor base but still about i can say somewhere about 50% of the market cap of all of our listed companies in the uk is actually held by institutional investors that's still a large number it's not as large as the 80% across the pond but it is still a large number and can these institutional investors make the right decisions in terms of where they have invested and how they can influence those companies another interesting statistic here is that of the money that institutional investors have put in nearly 2/3 of that money is sitting in companies where they have either a board seat or they have voting rights so they are able to influence this even within a market that is highly diversified i'm saying that those institutional investors who have a say they will be able to influence this because they have voting rights they have board seats in which case you can still make a change and to kind of top it up even in cases where you ask a question you know kind of raise a shareholder motion and it gets defeated at the agm even if it gets defeated at the agm two thirds of companies that have had planet friendly or climate friendly motions that were defeated at agms still took some level of action there will be a few which will never take any action there are basically ways and means to kind of tackle them but even those companies that had shareholder motions which were defeated they still go back and take action if you look at their 
annual reports next year, or if you look at their TCFD disclosures next year, you will see that they are taking action there. They are looking at the impact of what the shareholder asked. They know that if the shareholder asked today, and if it was defeated, their lifespan is quite short. They could come back with a with basically a bigger majority and actually look at it. So they are looking at the impact of these, you know, I should say, is with these kind of changes. The third avenue, essentially, is basically litigation. So across the world, we have seen an increase of environmental litigation over the last five years. So in the last five years, we have seen more environmental litigation than what we have seen in the last 50, right? Okay. And the underlying current behind all of this is not just in manufacturing or in fossil fuel or maybe in, let's say, in various other industrial sectors or whatever, right? This is across the board. Across the board, companies are being sued for making environmental claims, making product level claims. Companies are being sued a bunch of shareholders. Companies are being sued by a bunch of consumers. Companies are being taken to court as part of you know, what we call as basically a sumoto cognizance, meaning looking at the sort of environmental situation that we have, a court takes into account the fact that there have been various public interest cases, there are petitions, etc., etc., that are coming in in a certain way, but it is getting defeated. But a court can still choose to admit a petition. So these are happening around the world. It's a global trend, as we see. And we've seen more number of cases in the, I can say, in the post-pandemic, you know, since the pandemic started, there was a bit of a lull in environmental litigation, but it picked up as soon as, you know, lockdowns came down and things started becoming normal. We started seeing more number of environmental litigations basically coming in. So litigations are coming in, not just in the areas where there is policy or there is regulation. But these are coming in at areas where, where the litigant is essentially questioning your role as a director in a company. Have you made the right decisions for your shareholders? Are you upholding your fiduciary duty to your shareholders from an environmental perspective? So this is purely to, look, purely to kind of look at it. Yes, you are increasing returns. You are making sure that the actions that you're taking are towards the benefit of the shareholders. But a key fact over here is that you have not considered the environmental impact of your business as part of those decisions. Can you confirm that you have taken enough material into account before you made these decisions? So this is basically directors being sued. Basically, this particular petition that I'm talking about, it did get defeated, but there are alternative ways in which these kind of changes can, can basically take place, right? The moment you see that it's kind of a reverse of how the legal system can work. Essentially, the legal system works in a way it's kind of top-down, right? There is policy, there is a set of legal framework, you know, which has been set in place, and then when you see any contravention to the law, there is litigation to that effect. But here is a case where 
these litigations could actually influence future law making right so these kind of cases can start coming in at a scale and a number where policy makers have to take take into account the fact that these areas are legal loopholes there's also a a fourth angle here i'm sorry i'm taking a lot of time to answer your question but but there's also those <laughs> there's, there's also a there's also a fourth angle to this which is the case where you sign contracts there are various contracts that companies sign among themselves and contracts are generally i can say uh, customized to the effect that it kind of protects the basically protects the seller but as a buyer you don't essentially go and click agree 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 everywhere you have the right to negotiate on your contracts if it's an employment contract you have the right to right to negotiate that if it's a contract to to maybe buy a certain product or a subscription agreement yes you have the right to do that if you're buying a certain ev for instance it comes with a certain warranty that in itself is like a contract and these contracts are enforceable which means that basically in a number of cases contracts are only enforced in the instance where there is a complete you know product failure for instance so a group of consumers could basically choose to sue against the company actually made the product but other than that people don't necessarily look into the contracts that they sign but it is important if you're making a high value purchase like an ev you have to make sure that what you're buying is durable it can last a long life there are claims that evs can last 20 30 years very easily and in fact the battery will will kind of outlast the ev in itself but is that true and you also have the right to know what goes into your your sort of buyer agreement etc if you're financing it your financier is another point where where you can kind of negotiate so all these are possibilities in order to to kind of look at ways and means to change right no absolutely yeah. it's quite a very interesting overview because it's wide and but also detailed and one thing that i get also from everything that you said is obviously like your personal perspective on the topic which is over one that is actually inside uh certain mechanisms and virtual rooms you could call that that way so as you're saying because you mentioned specific investors involved in like operations of some kind and i definitely get that there are different actors here that need to kind of like yeah. come together and take a, a common decision institutions uh consumers and shareholders all of them involved probably in the same sort of way but like in a way that kind of like calls for a more conscious sort of kind of like behavior when it yeah. comes to yeah. Yeah. choosing either how to run a company a product to buy or basically legislations to be made you know that to mm-hmm. enforce and make viable certain decisions because you know one thing that i'm thinking is it is true that we can buy products that are more kind of like made in a more sustainable way compared to others ultimately the decision of the consumer as you were saying in the beginning as well 
goes towards the product that costs less. There is a reason for that. Yeah, it's not necessarily yeah. greed. It's most often necessity. Yeah, very true. very true. We would all shop to our groceries at Whole Foods if we could, because it's the best food around, whatever, it's done well, it's very expensive. Not all of us yeah. can go and kind of like buy that kind of grocery. So let's assume that the consumer has all the will to kind of like do things in the most correct way. I would still think that then institutions should kind of like do something towards the consumer to basically create the ground for the consumer to make such decisions. Mm-hmm. And maybe some of those decisions should, uh, of some of those actions, the, uh, the institutions should be actually towards the companies and the shareholders, kind of like force certain mechanisms to be activated to happen. But then on the other hand, I also understand that there is a need for maybe educating uh, the people as well. Yeah. In order to kind of like tell them like, what this is why this is important. We would do this, but would you be able, would you be up for then change your habits and go mm-hmm. for like specific um, um, goods instead of others? Are you able to mm-hmm. change this? So this is very complex and very wide and it's something that needs to be kind of like wrapped in from as a, kind of like as an octopus kind of like that needs to yes. wrap different angles all together absolutely absolutely yeah I think you also kind of like made an effort in exploding all the sides of the topic in order to uh, try to find uh, viable solutions and systems yeah from your experience from your knowledge and it's not something that you, you need to exhaustively kind of like answer now, but like, would you be able to kind of like build such framework that would involve mm-hmm. all those actors and then actively take action towards this issue in order to have an actual impact in the industry? Yeah. Is it something you and the people around you, your team would be able to tackle today? Yes, yes, absolutely. Are we? Absolutely. <laughs> really? <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there are frameworks that are available and there are okay. mechanisms that are available today, except it is too complex to use them. It is very complex to use them. And just the fact that there is a diversity of these standards makes it very difficult to analyze and very difficult to put this together. So I think the main actor that I would go after are the institutional investors, right? Okay. These are the pension funds, the university endowments, the the insurers, uh, the asset managers, your mutual fund, for instance, in places where they can channel their money towards the right companies. Right. right. So I would say that is where a lot of the work needs to get done. If you look at the strategies that many of these institutional investors have taken, and I'll, I would probably also include you know, PE firms as part of this, PE firms that invest into high carbon sectors, I would also look at them, right? And if I, if, I, if I basically look at the strategies that, that they've used, they've tried a lot of the portfolio reweighting approach, meaning they are trying to 
you know, bring in a few, you know, green investments. And there is obviously a smaller number of green investments which are of the same standard as to the high carbon ones that they are trying to replace, which is a fact. But I think the core here is many of them stop at that point. The idea is in corporate engagement. Mm-hmm. And how that corporate engagement needs to happen is through a structured process. They have the tools which are available, but the motivation to do that and the right kind of positioning is what needs to be put in front of them. And similarly, these institutional investors should take the message to the corporates that they have a board seat or they have maybe voting rights or even controlling stake in certain cases, right? They can take these decisions directly with the management and they can convince the management in order to do this. But where it is a case where now they have a minority stake, they can still bring in shareholder motions, which needs a certain level of it, basically a marketing effort. If you are coming up with a shareholder motion, you obviously want to reach out to the larger shareholder base as much as possible so that you get the right kind of votes. So that level of corporate engagement needs to happen. And on top of that, there needs to be a process by which the investor engages with their portfolio companies in bringing in decarbonization work. What are you going to do about your net zero goal? I, as an institutional investor, I'm going net zero by 2050, but I can't start that process unless you start it today. Mm -hmm. So if I've invested money into your company, I need to ask that question. In a number of cases, the portfolio companies also have net zero targets, also 2050, but no action has been taken so far or there is very limited action that has been taken so far. I will kind of qualify that statement and say there's very little action that has been taken so far. As I said, these business models, these industrial firms, these business models are one century or maybe two centuries old. Fundamentally, the management frameworks that are used as part of of the decision-making in these companies are very, very old. And they do not take into account the the climate-related impacts. The fact that there are net zero goals, etc., that does not come again. And sustainability as a practice, if you you essentially look at sustainability as a practice, it has stayed at a point where it is nice to have. In many of these high-carbon businesses, right, it is nice to have, right? I've spoken to, I can say thousand plus sustainability officers over the last five years and I don't ask them these questions directly but I try to understand how's your day job right what are the things that you do are you able to appoint somebody to look into this is there a vendor that you can bring in etc etc so my analysis here is that though many of the sustainability officers might have a C in front of them maybe a chief sustainability officer in front of them, they are not equals with the CFO or with the CEO. So that has to change. Secondly, if you look at it, 
a lot of the work that takes place in a, in a typical sustainability department i'm not talking about the ultra bright sustainability officer who hits you know who's got all cylinders working every single day i'm talking about typical sustainability officer his or her role and i can say a many many sustainability officers are women not only in this country but across the pond as well many of the sustainability officers are women and you will see that their typical role is largely to do with governance with accountability with measurement with reporting sustainability is not just a reporting business it's not a profession that is just reporting business right and when did sustainability become a purely environmental job of course many of these sustainability officers have a background in environment that's where they did their you know uni and whatever fantastic but sustainability is not just that sustainability is about being there in business 50 years down the road and for that you need to understand the business environment in which you operate you need to understand that these business models are not built for essentially for today you need to understand how you can bring in carbon how you can bring in carbon pricing how you can bring in intensity into the discussions these are key areas where action needs to be taken many of them i can say are not in a position where they can bring in an external vendor which means that their budgets are not in their hands completely even if you have a c in front of you the reality is they don't have budgets to spend maybe they can spend on a small reporting piece here and there or maybe a bit of you know say publication or they can by themselves as well as their colleagues to go and attend uh, some conference but beyond that can you make a change in the company as a sustainability officer that's a key question that's a key question and uh, the way they communicate these messages even if they want to make any changes and they want to bring in maybe a project the way they communicate these messages upwards as well as to their peers is quite the case of an environmental good mm-hmm. so again i'm not talking about the sustainability officer who is firing in all four cylinders all the time i'm talking about the general case of a sustainability officer in the developed world let's say western europe developed parts of asia as well as across the pond in the us and canada a typical sustainability officer is more environmentally focused on their projects so this can be you know corporate social responsibility that is a mix of you know things this is good for the climate which to a certain extent if it was maybe less than half a million it might get approved but if you are looking at a massive change in the company the board is not going to look at it only from an environmental good you got to show how this makes sense for my shareholders right, right? how does this improve the returns for my shareholders from talking to sustainability officers over the last 5 years as part of my research i don't see that happening yeah. right i don't see that happening i don't see that as personally a fault with the respective person nor do i see it as a fault with the profession where they are placed in the corporate ladder is very very important 
yeah. right? And what level of access and authority is given to them as a very key role is also a very important question to ask, right? Yeah, chief sustainability officer, but where do they sit? Exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, it feels like it's also a matter of the actual, like how the role ha- is is seen by like the governance of a company. As a sustainability officer, like what you're actually supposed to do or say, or like mm-hmm. what should be your influence in the business yeah. in general. I mean, on one on one hand, yes, it raises the point of is this something that should be changed? Mm-hmm. Should such individuals have a certain preparation whereby they would be able to tackle such and such side of the question, which is yeah. what we are saying, like what's the impact, what's the grand impact on a company if we go down a certain route or not. Then on the other hand, you're saying it would be way more effective to go to the institutional investors to say, like, look, yes, this might be good good today for for your pocket, but you have to factor in all those all those other sides and kind of like uh, of the topic and you have to factor in like also the emissions and all that. So would you be up if it would make financial sense to actually bring that change or vote for that change mm-hmm. within the institutions you are in or represent. We spoke about frameworks that exist. We spoke about the actual actors that are in play in here. Yeah. We know that an industry like the one of the electric vehicles needs to be, needs to be a thing because you know, at least we start from the emissions of the vehicle itself. Yeah. Let's not throw it away. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Exactly. Let's keep this. Exactly. Yeah. But then there are processes that need to be changed because obviously like changing materials, it could be more or less expensive, but also there is a different kind of like environmental impact that goes with uh, such and such decisions. It feels like if this was a puzzle, you have already all the pieces of the puzzle in front of you. Mm-hmm. It's just about kind of like assembling them in a way that actually form a picture <laughs> that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very true. Very true. Yeah. No one is. Pro- I don't know if anyone is doing anything in that direction because that is, mm-hmm. to me, still missing. Do you, as an individual, mm-hmm. have the wings mm-hmm. to actually go to such actors? So mm-hmm. we're saying institutional investors and say, like, look. Yes. This is what you could do. I yeah. could help you doing this. Is, would that be something? Because again, like it could be anyone like you. I just don't know about them. It could be that they're not just talking about it. I don't know if there is anyone else, any other soul in the world that <laughs> has had such ideas. It seems strange to me that you would be the only one, but <laughs> in case you are. I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one. Okay. Definitely, definitely, I'm not the only one. I can definitely say there are many, many like-minded people who are taking action in several ways. So it's definitely there, right? Whatever they can, there are a number of people who are taking action, right? It could be a case where bringing in transparency in terms of where that emission comes from. There are folks that are building excellent systems, taking it to these companies, bringing in the transparency. There are a number of folks who are bringing in accountability in terms of you know where those emissions come from, 
and not just the emissions, the entire you know, carbon cycle altogether, right? So looking at life cycle analysis, there are a number of firms that are actually doing this space, doing this space. And there are a number of you know, companies as well as institutional investors who are taking these into account, except mm-hmm. they are not yes. at a position, except they are not at a position where they can go to their board and say, hey, look, we've got to change this. They are not at the they are not at the position where they can go to their CEO or or their CFO to say, I need maybe a million pounds for me to investigate this further and take action on this. A question that, that I asked many of the you know sustainability officers that I've been talking to is you know, are you part of the management board? This kind of tells me where they are placed in terms of, you know, the organization structure, etc. About 40% of them are part of the management board. Some of them actually as non-voting members, right? Which is a shame, right? Which is, which is a shame, right? But a vast majority of them are not on the management board which means that they are not able to influence these decisions being made by the CEO and his you know, direct reports, his or her direct reports, which is a shame. And even when in the 40% of the sustainability officers that are on the management board and those who can vote, I've asked questions in order to understand their voting behavior. Have they voted down? Have they really voted down certain proposals which were against sustainability, for instance. Have they taken a stand? There are folks who have done that, which I'm very, very proud of. I'm I'm very, very proud of. I would say it takes a lot of effort to do that. When you have your boss and your boss's boss sitting there and by just voting there, you could be fired. You might not be able to pay your bills next month but you still vote based on your conscience. Right. Right. Okay. That takes a lot of guts and I'm proud of these guys. Right. That clarifies a lot. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) No, thanks for pointing it out because again, like see, like you see probably me like that, like a genuine reaction to, you know, such discovery, I'd say. Yeah. 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 We know how, we know who, but things are not happening. It's probably time to maybe like, start and i'm being very theoretical in saying this but start a movement mm-hmm. you know whereby different actors in the system are kind of like rising up and taking some sort of action together because acting mm-hmm. in isolation you know you would end up being like one of those folks you know kind of like standing their ground and saying i say no to this okay cool you're gonna have a job tomorrow at that yeah. point you know he would be a martyr yes but then yeah would that what be happens next what happens yeah. next? Exactly. What happens next? Exactly. Yeah. Again, like the solution would be, as you're saying, it's even logical now to basically go to the boss, 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 and say, <laughs> and say, like, look, you're putting this money here. You could put this money here, but you could do this in this certain way so that yeah. for, for the general good of like everyone and the planet. And then you would be able to kind of like collectively achieve an ability goals, or you could become an active promoter of this development that as a global community yeah. you are 
kind of like longing for and we are envisioning for our future. Would you want to be part of it? I guess it could be like a nice way to kind of like put it to those uh, institutional investors. And uh, yeah, I guess in this ideal world that we just envisioned, uh, probably like, again, like what is missing is this force uh, that is actually kind of like controlled and is going in the right direction. You know, this is the first time that I hear anyone tackling this topic. Now it's specific. To, we started talking about EVs, EVs but this goes yeah. wider to kind of like wider, any industry. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So how can, for example, then an institutional investor find you, for example, and have maybe a deeper discussion? Because you know, like one thing is talking to me and... yeah. You know, but then I cannot take any action <laughs> on this. <laughs> but surely, like, the right person could mm-hmm. probably be, be interested in kind of like uh, hearing, having you know, a like conversation. Yeah, yeah, having a conversation. Yeah. Yeah, yes. yeah. Yes. How can we make this happen? Like, if anyone would want to kind of like talk to you and go yeah. deeper into this, is yeah. that a way to do this? Or? Absolutely. Absolutely. Reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, so me BJ, right? Look out for that. Look at our website, Helix.Earth. Uh, we are the firm. We're basically a research-focused team that is also building a product. It's a platform that connects institutional investors and their high-carbon portfolio companies into what we call as a net-zero action network. So specific for your portfolio and how you can unlock value by decarbonizing your portfolio, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, look at our website, helix.earth, give us a shout, and we'll be happy to chat. Right. So this is the message to any institutional investors. Let's put it this way. Absolutely. You want to work towards decarbonizing your industry, we can talk about it. Yeah, yeah. And there is the yeah. website. Yeah. Wow. Okay. You know, it feels like a lot to take in. But I'd say like the principles to take away are very few. And when we talk about environment, like if we were to talk about environment to just in general in the public and, you know, where we're going as a species, it's kind of frightening, you know, like it's very hard to find hope in everything we see and everything we hear. I guess to me, as a kind of a complete naive listener to all this, one thing that I see is that there is at least hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is yeah. some hope in this. There is hope for those institutions which can take action immediately. The key here is time. Uh, if your portfolio needs decarbonization, you've got to start now. You can't start in 2040 because it'll be too late. And there are technologies that are available. There are firms that are doing a number of decarbonization projects. There are ample examples in the market. So if your portfolio company tells you that there is no technology that is available, there are no methods for me to decarbonize, please don't believe them. There are ways and means to do this. And there are ways and means to empower the sustainability officers in your organization as well as the portfolio company's organization. And these are the individuals who can definitely help you achieve that goal. And the other message that that I'd like to give here is while there is hope and there is definitely a time limit for that hope, I don't want to convey a complete picture which says 
okay there is hope and we can take action and we can we can do this there are other firms who are taking action since 20 years ago there are some smaller firms in fact one of my mentors happens to be uh running a sustainable investing firm for the last 20 years 20 plus years and they've only invested into companies that are sustainable their portfolio is not very large but they've made those choices all along they've made those choices all along and they've been sticking on to it for a very long time there's another individual that i'd like to talk about i'm not naming over here but is one of those who essentially brought in this connection between the climate and money climate and the economy pollution and the economy right how is this connected this is an individual which basically created that connection and said oh yeah it does mean business and that again was i think 15 years plus the world has moved from there but we don't have a lot of time left we don't want to be in a situation where we are too late to take action so the urgency is definitely there and as an offer to folks that are listening on this podcast we are providing a transition finance landscape report for those who get on to our website and basically fill in some very basic information we are providing a transition finance landscape report free of cost which will give you enough material enough meat for you to go to your leadership and the board to give them a view that there is hope and there is action to be taken on our on your portfolio i guess <laughs> we spoke about the past we spoke about the present and i guess we have a possible direction for so direction to take future as yeah. well yes thank you for sharing all this it's very um thanks francisco interesting for me to listen to all this again before being something that would make sense in you know the balance sheets of companies and shareholders it's something that again it probably gives an additional hope to those who kind of like live a normal life in uh, in a normal world yeah. uh, doing normal things uh not being part of uh, you know the overarching games that kind of like uh, being part of uh, the group of movers of, of the society it, it's very um enlightening to hear those things and to have this point of view so thanks for sharing and i would invite anyone who's listening to go to elix.earth and find out more about the initiatives of, of the organization thank you for this we'll uh, come back in the future with another video for more news about or more info about how to decarbonize industries thank you so much it has been a pleasure thank you thanks for having me on this fantastic yeah <laughs> Okay. Bye-bye. Thank bye-bye. you.